This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Thanks so much for coming. Who we have speaking today is Eric Garcia. He works at a nonprofit in the city of Chicago that I want to keep calling the Mexican Fine Arts Center Museum, but it's the National Museum of Mexican Art. And Eric may tell us a little about the organization, but it's one of the most outstanding um, institutions I've ever been in that shows just devoted to Mexican art, Mexican culture. And so we're very lucky to have that organization right here in Chicago. Even though it's not out here in the suburbs, it's definitely worth making a trip into the city, into the Pilsen neighborhood to see it. It's in what used to be a field house, um, a city field house. And it's just amazing. Every time I go, I get inspired and want to take a trip to Mexico. So what we've got today is Eric Garcia, who's in the education department. He's been with the museum for three years. And he's going to speak to us. We've only got an hour, so there's only so much he can cover. But he's going to give us a presentation about Mexican history. And I had also asked him to blend a little of his straightforward discussion about the history, the fascinating history of the country of Mexico with Mexican-American history, what the intersection is between Mexico and Chicago, because we have such a significant population of Mexican-Americans in Chicago who really contributed to the culture and life in Chicago. So let's give a hand for Eric Garcia. Thank you, Anne. Um, Again, my name is Eric Garcia, and I'm from the National Museum of Mexican Art. And uh, maybe you, some of you are wondering, why, why is the National Museum of Mexican Art even in Chicago? What is it doing out here in the, in the Midwest of the United States? Well, hopefully this, this lecture will kind of clue you in on, on how the, uh, uh, we got to this point, right? Why, why, are, why is there so much, or why is there such a big population of, of, uh, of Mexicans here in, in the Midwest? So um, I'm uh, part of the education department there, and this is my job. I go off-site to uh, all the different uh, uh, parts of the city and even out to the suburbs and beyond to give uh, different kinds of art lectures and art activities. And, but fortunately, today we're not going to be doing any activities. I'm just going to give you some, some straight info. And I brought a bunch of slides for you today. Uh, so we're going to go through them really quick and hopefully have some time at the end for some questions and answers. And... Um, what was I going to say? Keep in mind, this, this lecture is like a brief, brief generalization of, of, of Mexican history. And I'm trying to push it towards the, how, how it progressed even farther north into North America and, and out here into where we're at now in, in, uh, in um, Palos Hills, uh, Illinois, right? So let's start off. Let's start off. Um, let's start at the beginning of the, the formation of Mexico. Let's start with the Aztecs, the ancient Aztecs. This is a uh, Rivera mural um, of, of, uh, of ancient Mexican history, ancient uh, Mexico, right? This is Tenochtitlan, the ancient capital of the Aztecs. So Tenochtitlan was literally built inside Lake Texcoco. Right inside the, the lake is where they, they built their empire, their mighty city, Tenochtitlan. So they were able, their engineers were able to build little mini islands out into the lake, and they had causeways they would bring from, from, the, uh, from the mainland into the, into the uh, lake, um, all their supplies and everything they, they needed. So the, the Aztecs ruled the, of central Mexico for, for, for a good number of, of, uh, of uh, decades, and 
the and they had they were an empire. Don't get me wrong. They were they were an aggressive empire and they conquered many different states and that's how they built their empire. So in fifteen nineteen is when we, we get the other part of the history. The other we have the indigenous, now we have the Spanish influence. So Hernan Cortez and his five hundred conquistadores land in Veracruz, Mexico. They eventually make their way up into the capital of Tenochtitlan, where they meet Montezuma II, the emperor of the Aztec Empire. And with the help of uh, his, his native uh, uh, translator, La Malincha, he was able to interpret and, and, and communicate with, with the Aztecs. But um, these were conquistadores, and they were just uh, as, as brutal and as mighty empire as the Aztecs, right? They were this class of these two civilizations. They were, they were uh, equally uh, militant in, in, the, in their ways. So, with, so uh, Cortes was able to conquer the the whole empire of of uh, of, of the Aztecs with only 500 men. So, how was this, this 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 man able to do such a such a feat? Well, he had many advantages over the the native uh, populations. He was bringing um, horses, uh, a beast that the the indigenous people never even conceived of before. There was, was many of them uh, were misunderstood when they first saw these these beasts with the man mounted on top of them as they were one being of some kind of like centaur monster coming from. Them. So it terrified them, right? So psychologically, they already had their advantage of fear over the indigenous. Another one would be your, their use of of steel weapons. They didn't have such a uh, Technology at that time, the, the the Aztecs are still fighting with with wooden clubs and bows and arrows. Uh, another advantage would be uh, gunpowder. They had never seen such a, a thing as a as a rifle before, so the firepower was 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 almost a thing of superstition or or, or um, too advanced for for uh, for what they were using. Um, and then the last of all, which was the major factor of the help the conquistadors conquer the, the the empire, was the help of Disease, disease ravished throughout the the, uh, the native lands, which they were not uh, uh, immune to the, these foreign uh, biological warfare that the, the conquistadors didn't even unwittingly know that they had brought over. Right. So this is a picture of the center, the, the Zoclo, the main square of Tenochtitlan. This is what it used to look like with the two, the main pyramids, one uh, d dedicated to. Um, to Huitzilopochtli, the god of war, and the other to Talak, the god of rain. And this is what it used to look like previous. And then after the conquest, this is what it looks like now. This is present-day Mexico City. This is the, the Zocolo right there in the, the main plaza of Mexico City. So you can see the, the Spanish literally built right on top of the old ancient um, capital, using the, the same stones from, from, the, from the pyramids to build their, their, their new plaza and their new uh, cathedral, the cathedral right to the, to the left of you guys, as you can see. Um, and again, this was built on top of a lake. So, if you can imagine this, this this huge monumental piece of architecture, it's 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 heavy, right? And it's and it's and it's sinking. So the last time I was there was was a, ooh, a long time ago. But when I was there, you could actually see the cathedral tilted to its side, and they were they were they were now constructing this big scaffolding to to level it back out because it's still it's still settling in this very unstable earth. But eventually, you know, all these the lake was eventually uh, drained out, and the modern day city of of, of Mexico City is, is now established. You know, there's very few pockets you can still see the water of the lake. So I want you to understand uh, the the, um, uh, the influence of New Spain or the influence of Spain in the Americas, right? How how far uh, Spain's empire stretched in North America. 
So you can see Mexico City right in the, the middle here. This would be like the Kingdom of Mexico. And look how far north it's going. All the way up. This is present-day New, Mex New Mexico area, right? So New Spain enveloped a lot of, of what is now the United States. Half, half the United States, or, you know, more, more, all the southwest at least, you know, if we won't count Oregon. Was all con was was a Spanish-speaking territory at one point. You know, this is Texas, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, Arizona, California. All these parts were were part of the Spanish Empire. So let's not forget that this was once part of the, the Spanish-speaking territories where there was people already present. Um, so during this time of, of Spain's uh, uh, rule, you know, an, a, a different, eventually, a different mentality started. Uh, being established, a new Mexican mentality, right? So they're, now they're, these, these Spaniards were, were being um, intermingling and marrying and, uh, and, uh, and living amongst the indigenous peoples, right? So a new people w was starting to, to arrive, a new set of thinking, a new mestizo race, a mixture race. So that's where the idea was. Uh, there was something different than Spaniards now. They were not just Españoles. They were not just from Spain. And a lot of the, they had a lot of resentment for these elitist Spaniards who, who were primarily the rulers of this, of this colony of Spain, right? So many people revolted. In, in, in uh, 1810, the Father Hidalgo to the left, he, he was a, a father, a revolutionary thinker that, that uh, came up with this, one of the, uh, the ideas of, of revolting against Spain, right? To, because they wanted their own nation. They were tired of being, um, Politically and uh, and economically governed by the by a, a force that was across the ocean that had really nothing to do with them, and they were tired of the the um, the racist ways of the elite uh, peninsulares, the people from the peninsula they called them, right, the Spaniards, uh, ruling over someone that, that was that was different from them, you know, men mentally and and, uh, and even um, racially. So eventually, in 1810, Father Hidalgo revolted. Um, the, the revolution of the rebellion would last almost 11 years. Father Hidalgo would eventually be captured and killed. Uh, the, the guy next to him is General Morelos, who would pick up the mantle of the revolution and continue the, the revolution. Unfortunately, he was put down as well. But, ironically enough, uh, Itu, General Itubierde, which is one of the generals who were fighting alongside Spain, switched, switched uh, forces at the, just at the right timing and uh, and was able to to defeat the Spaniards and, and proclaim himself emperor of of the new of the new Mexico, right? So in 1821, Mexico has its own independence. Um, shortly after Mexico's independence, we're talking 1821 now. Um, they have trouble, right? They have trouble defending their northern boundaries. Look at this boundary up at the top. You you have the United States encroachment on on the uh, very left side. So Mexico has this idea that it's going to allow parts of, it says New Philippines here, but it will eventually be, be called the territories of Texas, Texas, right? So they would eventually make a deal with a gentleman named Sam Houston. Sam Houston was a, was a U.S. colonizer, and he made a deal with Mexico. He said, if you allow some U.S. colonizers to come into Mexico, we'll promise to... Uh, convert to Catholicism, will promise to uh, learn the Spanish language, and they will respect the Spanish government and protect you with your borders against the United States. Well, Mexico said, this is a good deal. This is what we need. We need these, these, these uh, northern territories populated so we could defend ourselves against the, the uh, up-and-coming new country of the United States. So they made this deal with Sam Houston. 
So eventually, the the deal uh, went through. More and more people came. Uh, U.S. colonizers came came to uh, Texas territories and they established themselves. But none of their promises were ever met. They never uh, proceeded to learn the Spanish language or become Catholic. And eventually, they revolted. In the in the the famous battle of, of Americana history of the Alamo, right? So 1836, Texas revolts. They proclaimed themselves a republic of their own. They they didn't want to be um, a part of the the Mexican uh, republic anymore. So Texas would become their own little republic for a good while, almost um, nine years, until in uh, uh, 1845, the United States would eventually annex them and say, you know, we'll we'll just become part of the United States. And and Texas didn't have any problem with that. I think it it was more of a... Uh, the the overarching idea of, of what was going to happen, right? So, 1845, uh, Texas gets annexed. It's uh, no wonder in the following year, 1846, the United States and its idea from President Polk of Manifest Destiny that the land of the West was 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 God-given right to the United States, and President Polk pushed forward to to uh, go on and invade Mexico. Um, and for two years, 1846 to 1848, which is what is commonly called in U.S. history books the Mexican-American War, but in Mexico it's called the US, United States Invasion. The United States invaded to Mexico and, and, and has no problem uh, wiping the, the forces out and reaching all the way to Mexico City. Um, so let's, let's look at the, the map here. So the Texas Republic in the dark, dark red. The disputed areas... Right after Texas, uh, uh, t- Texas wins its, its little uh, war, the disputed areas, they were claiming everything west of the Rio Grande, right here. Mexico was still claiming, no, 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 you only got this part. This, would, this, this border conflict was eventually would be the spark that, in, that initiated the, uh, the war of, of Mexico and the United States. But eventually, you know, the United States would overrun all of, the, all of these northern territories of, uh, of Mexico, right? in telling, taking California, New Mexico, Texas, Colorado, all these northern territories, right? So the new border would eventually would be going like this, if you could see that, my cursor. So, all the, so overnight, these Spanish-speaking populations, these Mexican people that were living in these territories, now all of a sudden became part of the United States, right? Just like that. The, the borders crossed them, the... the they didn't cross the border. So all these populations were now, these Mexican, Spanish-speaking populations are now part of the United States. So that adds another element to our story, right? So so it's not just Mexico coming to the United States. Mexico actually came to them. Uh, the 1880s, let's push a little forward. The railroads start coming south to the southwest. The United States starts making the transatlantic uh, railroad that reaches from California all the way across the United States. These new rail paths would cut through the, these, these, these former territories of Mexico and link up with all kinds of different major port cities of San Francisco to the Santa Fe Trail and all, out, out even to uh, places like Chicago, right? So these rail yards would, would now be, be this new kind of uh, um, road or highway that, that, uh, that immigration made, would, would be making possible for, for Mexicanos to venture out of the, these former territories, right? So if the railways were coming down into New Mexico, of course, you know, people are, are, are always looking for, for economic uh, ways or, or, or to travel or find new places, new, new work. So they would be fu- funneling out 
farther from these rail yards and to other places out east into the Midwest all to find work of different stuff, especially with the railroad. The railroads were a big uh, economic um, force to push people to, to get jobs working on the, in the rail yards, building train tracks and working with um, the engines and, the, and, and so forth of the railroad and the stockyards. So these, these workers would travel with the trains and migrate farther, farther, farther east. Right, so here's some pictures. This is one of the one of the pictures of uh, I think it's 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 from somewhere in New Mexico, where you could see the, all the the populations and the and the people gathering on the train. Um, meanwhile, oh, meanwhile, south of the border, south of this newly constructed border, we're talking 1910 now. Um, we have the Porfiriatro is what it's called, right? This is the time, the 30-year uh, dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz. Diaz is the gentleman to your left, right? He was the, the man that was, uh, that's mostly um, mentioned as, as the modern modernization. He brought modernization to Mexico, establishing uh, electricity, railroads, all kinds of um, economic opportunities, of foreign investment to Mexico, making it a modern industrial city, uh, country. Excuse me, but on the backbones of all the people of of uh, of Mexico. So so there was a big class issue going on in Mexico. There was the upper elites that were gaining all all gaining all this um, um, wealth and 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 prestige of, of bringing Mexico into the 21st century. But it was done with the the hard labor and the cost of of oppression of the masses of the people. So in 1810. The revolution breaks out in Mexico in 1810, I mean 1910, excuse me, 1910 of the, Me the Mexican Revolution starts and would last another 10 years from 1910 to 1920. This, this uh, revolution was a, was, a, was a big, another big push to go somewhere else in Mexico. Because of the, all the strife and the conflict and the, and the chaos of the revolution, this would propel another wave of, of uh, of migration up north, right? So, so a lot of these um, these uh, uh, fellow Mexicanos would would go north, looking for a better opportunity, looking for a safer place to live, versus the, dealing with the the chaos and the and the unstable government that was that was changing multiple multiple times during the revolution. So they came they came north looking for work, and they found it. They found work. Um, Harvesting and, and working in the agric agricultural businesses alongside the rail systems of uh, the United States. Um, soon after, right? I'm talking uh, 1910, 1920 during the revolution. That same time, globally, what's happening? World War One has broken out. World War One has, has had broken out. Excuse me. Um, 1917, the United States gets involved in World War I. 1917, the, world, the United States gets involved and they send troops to Europe, right? So now there's, 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 a, there's a vacuum in the United States. They're missing a major population, a major workforce of their country. So how can we stabilize our country and keep it going economically? We need someone else to fill in that gap. We need someone else to fill in that place for all the, our men that are fighting over off in, overseas. One way was with bringing in um, migrant workers. This was this was a, a push for for or an actual uh, incentive for for Mexico 
to to take a lot of the 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 chaos or the chaotic populations that uh, didn't have have worked and and send them north and this benefited mostly from the people that were looking for jobs up north right so there is an actual need for for the population of, of Mexico to come up north and start working in all the the um, industries that were left um, vacant from the from the men's fighting overseas. Um, and one one of these areas was was um, Chicago in particularly. A lot more populations came up to Chicago into these industrial steel mills, into the um, into the meat packing industries. This was all done there in Chicago. So there was a, a big um, um, uh, what would I say a big uh, opportunity there in in, in the Midwest, and a, and a, and a lot more. People were coming in because this was an, a developing city. It was a major point of of industry for the United States, and for and people knew this, and they migrate, they gravitated toward this, the opportunities that were there. So, um, so this is an early shot of what Pilsen looked like. So, in the early in the early time, early twentieth uh, century, in in uh, Chicago, places like the, the back of the yards, uh, Pilsen, what is now today. Pilsen, and then what is now today uh, called Little Village, places like that would become um, more and more uh, places where, where Mexicanos were migrating to because they were close to all these di different industrial areas where they worked. That's where they were working, so they're going to live close by. But these 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 um, communities were also populated with Czechs and with Polish people. There were also you know all these different um, European immigrants that came to to Chicago as well looking for jobs. So more and more, the especially in, in Pilsen and, and places like the back of the yards, more and more Mexicanos started living and working there, and eventually it, be, it became the dominant. Um, um, they became the dominant ethnicity living there, and and they would be even not not working and going back to Mexico, but the idea of working and staying there. They're trying to establish ties to the area there. You can see to the to your right that they even. They started building churches. They started building community centers. They even have, uh, for instance, their own little baseball and, and soccer leagues. So they start gaining roots there in Chicago is what I'm trying to say. They're, they're not migrating anymore, but they're actually settling down and having families in this early period, early, early period. But then what happens? The, de the Great Depression hits. 1929, Black Tuesday. The stock market crashes and everything goes to bust. The United States is, uh, the economy is devastated. Everyone's looking for work, and when uh, things get tough, you know it's it's always you know fend for yourself, right? So a, a big push against the migrants now. Now before we were enticing them to come to work for us. Now that people are coming back from the from the war, the war is over, and the, uh, and the economy goes bust. So now we're scrambling for jobs. Uh oh. These these immigrants are you know we we need to we need to get them out. They're taking our jobs. There's not enough jobs for all of us. So, so you know someone has to go, right? So we, as you can see in this this billboard that was that was there, you know that there's a, there, we got to take care of our own. We don't we don't have enough for you. You guys have to leave. So there was a big push during the during the Great Depression to to dissuade um, uh, Mexican immigrants from coming in, right? And to even push some out. Um, that was 1930s. Now let's go into the 1940s and the, and the start of World War II. World War II is an, an, another um, another situation where now the newly now the new established Mexicanos 
were now seeing themselves not just as Mexicanos, not just as Mexicans, but Mexican-Americans. Their mentality started to change as well, right? Now they're not saying, you know, well, I, these are, now these are like almost, you know, second generation. So they were born in the United States. They're saying, well, I have a piece in this pie. I was born here and I work here. I, I don't, uh, my parents may have migrated here, but I, I, I'm, I'm an American citizen. I'm a United States citizen. So, so eventually, these United States citizens would would go off and and fight and fight for the for the United States, right? They would go off to war. This is a, one of the Congressional Medal of Honor awards, honor uh, awarded uh, to Manuel Perez, who who had fought uh, for the United States, and he was from the from the uh, from Chicago. And so, so for people like this, the, it makes it more interesting uh, or more complicated. Um, Part of the history, right? So now these there's the Mex Mexican Americans, but now they're they're very much part of the United States or entrenched in the American way of life. Um. So during the World War Two, exactly what happened in World War One, a lot of a lot of men go off, including those Mexican Americans that are fighting for their for their their new country, right? There's a gap. There's that economic gap once again. So now there's a pool. There's a pool once again to bring in Mexican workers with the Bracero program. The Bracero program was a legalized uh, United States sanctioned agreement between Mexico and the United States to bring in more um, laborers into the United States to fill those gaps once again. As you can see here, we have some, some guys coming on the train, we, other people going through through uh, documentation of the border, and the border is, is trying is, is changing as well. It's not it's not just a uh, line in the ground anymore. There's more and more um, border patrol and border crossings and, and ways of, of checking people who's coming in and out. So things are changing on the border as well. There's lots more um, legalities coming in. Um, but then after the war, we have that same situation. All the men are coming back for war. They need to work too, right? So they they're gonna get the jobs. We don't need the we don't need these the, the immigrants anymore. So unfortunately, the the United States uh, came up with a uh, a, a counteract for the Bracero program, which was called Operation Wetback. Operation Wetback was introduced in the 1950s to go out and repatronize these these Mexicanos. To uh, to go out and 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 look for for Mexicans who who they they think they should be taken back to Mexico because you know we don't we don't want them anymore they've done their job and okay we need them out and this was an unfortunate act because there is also uh, lots and lots of instances where there is uh, U.S. born Mexican Americans that were just at the wrong place in the wrong time or even part of the you know this is during the McCarthy area so there's like this this communist scare if you were politically um, um, on the wrong side they, they could just say oh well we're, we're charging you with with the wetback program the wetback um, operation wetback and we considered you um, the ones that got to go right so a lot of people were were um, were, were were taken from from basically where they were born, right? They were taken to a, to a foreign country where the, where they weren't from, and and put there. Uh, is one of the big ironies of of, of Operation Wetback because you had a lot of U.S. born people that were they had they had to be Mexican descent and they were sent to, sent away. So that was another thing that was going on during the 50s. Um, so so meanwhile there there was plenty of of, of immigrants that they could not 
take, right? They're well established in, in, in the United States and they have many ties going back farther and farther, especially in Chicago, working in the industrial areas, working in the meatpacking industries in the back of the yards and the Pilsen neighborhoods. And they not only went to work in these communities, but they also developed and worked in bringing in their own type of um, economic endeavors, right? Opened their own carnicerias, right? Opening, which is the, the butcher shop, their own panderias, opening their own bakeries, right? So there were not, there is also opportunists or, or entrepreneurs who were, who were, who were getting a little um, established here in, in, in Chicago. They're, they're making, uh, a decent amount of money, or maybe their, their fathers had worked in the old mills, and, the, and, their, they ra- and their, their kids were now coming up, and they were, they were getting educated, and they were getting better and better jobs. Um, for instance, you have the member, members of the first Mexican uh, Chamber of Commerce. You have the uh, members of the Mexican Police Officers Association, women of the 19th This is the uh, Mexican Business and Professional Women's Association, members of the Mexican Lawyer Association. So, so Mexican-Americans were not only being integrated within uh, Chicago um, neighborhoods, but also economically, they were they were they were moving up in the in the stratus and in the ladder, right? Um, their their fathers might have come here as laborers back then, but now they become educated and they they've moved up uh, financially, economically. Um, they they also brought all these different customs that have become part of uh, Chicago, right? Part of the the areas of of the barrios of Pilsen and, and Little Village, these have become in, in, in integrated within our even uh, every, everyday lexicon within the United States, right? This is, this is, some of these things aren't even foreign anymore, right? So Mexican Independence Day is, is always a big celebration in Little Village with parades and all, everything going on in 26th Street. Um, Cinco de Mayo is, is a pretty interesting holiday because this is a holiday that's primarily not celebrated in Mexico. Cinco de Mayo is a commemoration of a, of a certain battle against the French when the French occupied Mexico, and is not a big celebration in Mexico. In the in the in the tiny pueblo, in the little town of, of of Puebla, where it actually happened, it's celebrated. And over here in the United States, it's ironic because it's something big. It's it's, it's actually become a United States Mexican celebration. So that's the funny thing about Cinco de Mayo. It's it's more like a St. Patty's Day, right? A St. Patrick's Day, because there's not a St. Patrick's Day in, in Ireland. It's more, it's mostly an, an American, a United States thing. Um, also, in every every Lent, every every Easter, they have the uh, the Pasture of the Christ celebration there in Pilsen, where they have the big procession of the of Jesus and his and uh, and the Passion of the Christ. Um, and then, of course, the National Museum of Mexican Art has been established right there in Pilsen, and and for, and fortunately, we, we've, we're commemorating our, our 25th anniversary of, of being here and established in Chicago. Um, it was an, it was actually an old field house, like you were, you were mentioning that, but it, it was a, it was a house that that housed boats at one point. You, they, people would go and and I'm not sh- sure how it worked out, but this was a place where boats were stored, and then eventually it became you know. Um, our director Totolero and, uh, and other colleagues of the of the neighborhood had this bright idea to 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 uh, to rent the space and then put some art in it and eventually uh, developed into what it is today and it's a nationally recognized organization. Um, so all the arts have, have have come into Pilsen, right? So all these different art forms, even icons, right? You can you can walk down Pilsen, you can see the Virgen de Guadalupe, you can see all the different 
um, different visuals and, and, and iconic imagery of Mexico. If you walk down the street, you'll see the, the manhole covers are actually uh, designed to look like Aztec calendars. Um, through the, even in the, in, the L, in the L train, you can see different murals. And of course, we have the museum right, th right in the heart of, of, uh, of Pilsen. Um, and politically, politically, um, people, governments, politicians recognize how big of a population of Mexicanos has become and the strength of that population. Um, for instance, uh, Rudy Zano was one of the aldermen uh, back in the day, and he was the one that, that helped um, um, Howard, uh, Howard Washington get elected. He was able to bring in that Latino or that, the Mexicano vote, which was a block, that, a key block, that was intricate in helping him win the race, right? Uh, you have the daily, you have the amigos for daily, right? He, daily was smart. He knew that the, he needed to tap into this minority uh, population to get the votes. So there's different organizations that, you know, uh, trying to, to manipulate masses and get people out to vote for which way or the other. Uh, former president of Mexico, Vicente Fox, even came out to Chicago because he, he wanted to... to uh, even get the, 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 that, that key, uh, that big population of Mexicanos to vote for him, right? Have, he was trying to integrate the, um, um, what would you call it, um, voting, uh, you, you're able to vote even though you, you live in the other, even though you live in the other country to, to vote in Mexico. Um, it wasn't around during that time, but eventually in, 2000, in 2002, they finally allowed Mexicanos to vote uh, for their their previous country, but you know he recognized the the value of the the numbers of the population in Mexico, so he came out uh, trying to trying to gain their their, their vote. Uh, down here you have Cesar Chavez. Cesar Chavez was one of the last stops before he was uh, before he died. He he gave a talk there at the National Museum of Mexican Art. So there's all kinds of different political ties that they, which which proves the the importance of this population here in Chicago. Um, a big thing for 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 undocumented immigrants in in '82 during the Reagan administration was the Amnesty Act. So during the, with this act, um, every the, all the undocumented during this period were allowed amnesty. They were able to to finally come out from the shadows and become legalized with the Amnesty Act. And excuse me. And a lot of Mexicanos <laughs> admire uh, Reagan for this, for doing such a thing. And it, it only lasted up till '82. For all, so all the people previous to '82 that had been established could become uh, citizens. And uh, I don't think you can see my my uh, demographics here, my my numbers. But Los Angeles is is the biggest population uh, of Mexicanos other than Mexico. Um, this one is from 2000. This is a 2000 cens census, and it has a, a million, over a little bit over a million in in Los Angeles. And right below that number two is, of course, Chicago, with uh, 530,000. 530, so that that's the 2000 census right there. But you can you can see you know the, the former territories of Mexico and how it's of course it's going to be populated with Mexican Americans. So of course Los Angeles being in the proximity to close proximity to Mexico is going to have that great population. But look how far it is. And you see that little blue chunk right there of of Mexicanos that you know that's been established right there in the heart of the Midwest. It's it's pretty amazing. Um, oh, and then I didn't you know I haven't even 
talk about the, I barely touched on undocumented, you know, uh, the last census had 11.2 million undocumented uh, Mexican-American immigrants living within the United States. Um, so you still have to counter that, right? You have to take that into account for all those different populations. But uh, what I wanted to leave you with, this is my last slide, is, you know, for generations and generations, Mexicanos have been in North America, have been in the United States for a long, long time. We've become in integrated uh, within the United States culture, and the United States is culture is even being integrated by us, right? So it's a cross-pollination of influences and ideas and mixture. Um, and that's all I have. I, I would like to uh, open it up to questions if you guys have anything to add or, or take, take from me. Yes, sir. A lot of people are coming from, from central, uh, central Mexico right now, they say. Um, but they say actually now because of the, the drug wars, a lot of the, the fronteras, a lot of the major um, parts that are, that are hit most by the drug, the, the drug cartels, a lot of people are fleeing those areas to come up north. I couldn't give you a specific city or state. Um, but that's one of the big pushes. And then, you know, Mexico City is one of the biggest countries, in, I mean, countries, cities in the world, Mexico City itself. So the, the dynamics there, you know, if it, the population of all the, those people scavenging for jobs, a, a big chunk of those people are going to come from Mexico City up north to look for jobs. Um, I, don't, I couldn't ac answer that exactly, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, Sam Houston, uh, unfortunately, he didn't keep good faith in uh, most of his <laughs> colonizers, as, as I as I shown in the in the in the in the in the map previous. You know, the Texas eventually became its own. I think Sam Houston had the intentions of of becoming part of Mexico and and, and wanted to do it, but because of the. Uh, the new constitution that Mexico put in place during the time he was he was there in Texas really pushed him to to rebel. But I think he, he initially did want to be part of of the Mexican Republic and establish that uh, Texas colony up north. Uh, as far as NAFTA, um, yeah, NAFTA has been a big uh, complex, uh, good and bad for the United States. Um, just a couple of years ago, uh, because of NAFTA, NAFTA, the free trade agreement, it allowed the United States to make un, uh, unlimited amount of, of purchasing power of Mexico's corn, which depleted Mexico's main source of, 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 uh, of, of foodstuffs, right? So Mexico was left without a, a main source of their foods. Meanwhile, United States, all the corn was going up north, so the the unlimited amount of, or the unchecked tariffs of the North American Trade Agreement is kind of a, uh, a tricky issue. Um, more and more trade is going back and forth between uh, Mexico and the United States, but there there are um, things that are iffy about it that a lot of people don't like. I don't know if that answers your question, sir. 
Yes. That Federico V. Hill? Yeah. Yeah, the Southwest is is a peculiar place for Chicano and Mexicano identities, and I think that's what uh, Federico V. Hill is, is brushing upon because of that border that that uh, that border that was imposed on on these territories. It split people not only um, geographically but psychologically, right? Um, New Mexico was 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 colonized in 1598. That's a long, long time, right? 1598. So Mexico City was way down here, right? And New Mexico, that territory of, of maybe the out the outpost of, of the frontier, Santa Fe or Taos, these little outposts way up here. That's a long way. So the train, the the the, the trade route was maybe like every two times a year they would they would cross paths, right? They're going back and forth. So they were kind of out there on their own. So 1821 is Mexican independence. They're starting to, to, to understand their identity. All of a sudden, uh, 40 years later, this, this, the, the United States takes the, the, the Southwest, those Northern Territories. So there's only a, 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 sm- a small time period where they can, for these, these Northern parts to establish that idea of Mexican so that's that's part of it, right? That that that's part of it. And and the, there's some I you know, uh, there's some in New Mexico that will actually claim no, 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 I'm not Mexican, I'm Spaniard. Because they don't they don't want to associate themselves because of um, their own personal reasons uh, of of being. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so so New Mexico was up here on the on the frontiers. You know, they've been they integrated with the Pueblo Indians and and all the these these different native tribes that were there. Um, but the but there's 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 a gap that border. I'm I'm, I'm trying to explain that border. It, it severed a people, right? So now they were these were United States citizens and these were Mexicans, right? Um, things were going down over here, like the the Mexican Revolution. They were chaotic. The United States didn't was wary of bandidos. This this idea of the of the the Mexican bandit and and, and stuff like that. The mentality that 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 unfortunately these people had to assimilate to a foreign country. They had to assimilate to the United States. They had to conform uh, mentally and in their education. Right. My parents, for instance, my parents are from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they were punished 
during their bringing up for speaking Spanish when they were in college, when they were in, when they were in grade school. Spanish was their first language, right? But they were punished for speaking this, this their, first, uh, their first language. So they had to adapt. They had to uh, understand English. They had to adapt to the new laws, the new culture of the United States. And that, that, um, that cultural difference, that way of assimilating their mind, actually pushed them farther away from their, from their actual primos who lived in Mexico, right? This, this kind of mindset. And then, and then further generations, if you want to lose that language, how do you communicate with your brothers and sisters from south of the border, right? A lot of people can't, a lot of Chicanos or, you know, Mexican-Americans that, that were from these regions because of assimilation, because of English only, can't talk in Spanish. So how, how are they going to identify or communicate with their, with their family from south of the border? So it's a, it's a bunch of different factors, historical parts of the border, it's part of assimilation, it's part of... Um, uh, new identities, a way of thinking of yourself. Maybe some people from these regions that are that are that are Mexicano uh, historically don't even see themselves as that anymore. They say, "Oh, I'm just an American. I'm just part of the United States." Right. So there's all kinds of different factors that go on and play in that in that realm of the Southwest, which is really complex, and I, and I, can, I can only go really briefly about it. Yes, sir. Supported financially through a lot of lot of uh, grants. <laughs> so the education department that I work with is one of the biggest departments there, and and uh, we do a lot of different outreach within the within the public school system. Um, presentations like this that enables us to get some funds uh, um, into the museum. But a lot of it, uh, our our director uh, Totodero, he's he's always out and about. He's always flying somewhere. Um, um, looking for, for grants and for supporters and stuff like that. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, Arizona's been a, a big deal uh, in, the, in the past uh, year because of their new uh, laws of uh, English only and the uh, Anti-Immigration Act and even... Uh, a couple of months back with their uh, anti-Chicano uh, studies uh, issues, right? So now they're actually burning books over there if, you, if you're reading uh, Occupied America and stuff like that. So uh, Arizona has become a, a big, big um, uh, hot hot state with, with all kinds of, uh, of uh, issues of, of race and class and culture, right? Um, um Arizona is funny because Arizona was in right next to New Mexico. New Mexico was a highly colonized part of of the Spanish Empire, and Arizona was was not colonized in the same way. Arizona was a desert; people didn't want to go there. You had the native populations, but they stayed mostly close to the to the to the water sources. And all of a sudden, you got a modern uh, city like Phoenix and stuff like that, where it's built literally in the desert and they're pumping water into it. You know, so these are cities that were developed after um, the conquest of this territory by the United States. So a lot of the the populations that are in Arizona are are are, are newly arrived uh, United States co uh, colonizers of the, of that of that part of the state, right? Looking, they're going there for, they're originally going there for the mineral resources that are there in Arizona and establishing the, these cities. So there is, there, they don't have that, that same um, big populations of Mexicanos like, like other states do. 
So with that, because there's a lot more um, Anglo um, um, uh, United States um, non-Spanish speaking immigrants to that area, I think that's why there's so many um, laws that are anti-Mexican, that are anti-Mexicano. So there's all these different uh, laws with the new Governor Brewer, who is a big push of the um, um, English only and uh, the new uh, regulations of, of immigrants coming in, the Border Patrols, uh, Minutemen. Um, you even have uh, Sheriff Paiu, who, who's a big uh, part of the mix, who, who, who's running some uh, these uh, semi-camps uh, to, to house all the uh, encroaching undocumented people that have been traveling through the borders. So Arizona is a big, big, uh, and the big issue. And, and it's, it's funny because it's surrounded by populations of Mexicanos. The, the more and more Mexicanos live all, all around the southwest, of course. So it's ir ironic that right on the border that Arizona can be so harsh of, of, of people amongst them. Um, does that answer your question? Any last questions? Last question. Um, it depends where you go. There are places th in Mexico that are that are very hot. There's there's a lot of violence going on. I'm just be blunt to say it, but there there's a lot of violence going on in Mexico. But there's a lot of places in Mexico that you would not see it. You, that you could you could go and walk down the street and you can enjoy the sights. You can go to Mexico City, enjoy the Bellas Artes and all the pyramids and of uh, Tehuantepecan, and you'll and you'll be fine. But there are dangerous parts. Um, the drug wars is, it exploded in the past couple of years with the new president of Calderon, with his with his um, his his forward path of of the drug on wars, um, and the the ironic part of it is us here in the United States is 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 what is the drug war about? Right, the drug war is about people, these different uh, drug cartels fighting each other. For, for to monopolize uh, a product that the United States consumes. The United States consumes over 90% of the, of the narcotics that are brought from South America. 90%, 90%. All of those, 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 those narcotics that are being developed in Central and South America, where's the market for them? Up north where people can afford them, right? So up... Well, that's that's one reason, right? The other reason is is they don't want to see the populations of of of, of Central Americans, South Americans coming to the United States. Right? It's part of it. Part of it has to do with race. Part of it has to do with with economics. Part of it has to do with with drugs. You know, there's all kinds of different factors. But the the we have to think about is is what if what if there wasn't a need, right? It comes back to economics. If there wasn't if not a want then there's not a need, right? If the United States didn't want these, these narcotics, if there wasn't a, a need up north, then these, 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 these cartels would go bust. They're making their profit is because we're paying for it, is, 
is, is my perspective, and it, and it's, it has to do with, with economics. The economics of Mexico, unfortunately, it's 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 its economy is very very weak, and some of the only paying jobs, some of the only places for 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 people to move up economically is to go in some in some of these routes, right? If there's no job there for you, you're going to survive in any in any way possible. And sometimes it's it's dealing doing these illegal acts of, of transporting or or participating in in the in the drug in the drug world. So it's a sad sad situation and it has it's very complex and I I'm, I'm sure that doesn't even touch on on part of it but that's kind of the reality of the of the situation. Sure, sure. We we all the National Museum of Mexico was actually fortunate enough to have in a couple of years back an actual uh, show dedicated to the African presence in Mexico. It was called it was called the African Presence, the Third Root of, of Mexican Identity, which tells the story of you know it's not only about the Spanish Europeans, not only about the indigenous of Mexico, but it's also about the African slave that was brought there to help develop this country, right? So that's the other part of, of Mexican history that kind of gets uh, overlooked many times. Is, is Mexico was because of, like I had said before, how did the Europeans conquer the indigenous peoples? One way, one mass way, was through disease. If the total, if you're, if you're, if more than half of your your people that are working for you, these slaves of the native peoples, dies, you need to replace them. And how they do it with African populations, African slaves they had brought over to Mexico and helped build the country. And then of course the, these African populations are going to integrate with with your with your with your population. And that's the that's the other mixture that that Mexico partly because of racism they don't want to recognize because they, they still want to because the color of your skin is very, very um, unfortunately uh, important in Mexico, but the class and the race issue. And you know, it's it's uh, it's a thing that that they're, that any country is not proud of their their, their historical race problem or uh, slave problem. So yeah, Mexico's other realm is with was with with the Africans Africans brought from uh, black Af Africans brought from from uh, from Africa. Um, an interesting part of that, of if you read your, uh, a small little tidbit, in uh, I don't have it with me. The former slave, was, his name was Yanga, and uh, and in 1609, Yanga, this was the first slave rev successful slave revolt. No one ever talks about this. His name was he was a, a former slave, and his name was Yanga. In 1609, he was he was in one of the first uh, slave revolts to actually succe success be successful in the Americas, and he was actually able to. Uh, um, gather a band of people and ha and hide out in a, in, a, in, a, in a city to establish their own little community there and for for decades the the spanish couldn't couldn't conquer him couldn't defeat him they actually eventually gave him his own his own little city to 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 rule upon he was one of the very first successful slave uh, rebellions that people don't talk about so yeah thanks for bringing that up and I encourage you uh, all to keep uh, investigating uh, history like that because it's out there we ju we just don't really or, or know about it yet. Any one last question or I think that's about it.
All right. Oh, one last one. I'm sorry. Their museum is in Pilsen neighborhood, right there in uh, off of 19th and Damon, right there in Chicago. So if you're on the pink line, you can either take the 18th stop or the Damon stop. Uh, we're right in front of Harrison Park. I have a bunch of brochures on the seats that tell you more directions and, and stuff that's happening in, in our museum. It's our 25th anniversary. I encourage all of you to come out and see us. There's lots to see, lots of... Lots of art, uh, all kinds of activities going on. So I encourage you all to come out. Thank you guys for having me. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu/library.